0: Isn't it great to pray as a church family for one another? Well, good morning. I want to share some stories with you this morning. This one comes from Reader's Digest. Janie Walser shares about her experience working at a grocery store. She helps mostly elderly people who come in and need assistance. And so as she helps people, there was one woman who started coming in, an elderly woman. And she would come in most every day and just buy a few items, you know, just two or three items. And this went on for about a month. So finally, the elderly woman said to her, well, you're probably wondering why I come in so often and just buy a few items. Well, my nephew lives with me. And I can't stand him. <laughs> so I'm not going to die and leave him a refrigerator full of food. <laughs> Another story. Oh. There is an elder way woman and she is uh, driving her caddy in, into a mall, and she's looking for a parking space, and she sees one, and she goes for it, but just before she could get in, a little red sports car whips into her parking spot, and she gets out. She's pretty incensed, and she said, Sonny, who do you think you are? And he says, I'm young, and I'm fast. So he goes into shop and soon comes out, only to see her with her caddy ramming his little red sports car. And he gets out and he says, Lady, who do you think you are? I'm old and I'm rich. (laughs) Last story. At 3 a.m. one night, a man calls and he says, Professor Smith, this is your neighbor, Mr. Jones. I just wanted to tell you, your dog is barking and keeping me awake. Well, the professor thanked him and hung up. The next night, morning rather, at exactly 3 a.m., he gets a call. And he says, this is the professor. Professor. I don't have a dog. (laughs) What do these three stories have in common? They're all talking about revenge. Getting even. You know, I don't get mad. I get even. And anybody who's been wronged has probably felt the desire for revenge. And sometimes it masquerades as a sense of justice. I'm just giving him a taste of what he gave me. Well, as it turns out, this is not just an American phenomenon, this is worldwide. Vendettas or blood feuds, for example, are cycles of provocation and retaliation fueled by a burning desire for revenge and carried out over long periods of time by families or clans. They happen in many places, for example, in pre-industrial Mediterranean countries. That was very common, and is still common today. The Albanian people have something they call blood feuds, which involve vendettas. In Japan's feudal past, the samurai class upheld the honor of their family or clan or lord through the practice of revenge killings. And it wasn't limited to the person who did the offense. It also might include their family. The motto of Scotland, Nemo me impune la is Latin for... No one harms me unpunished. And it reflects the feudal clan system of ancient Scotland, particularly the highlands. Even America, we have this proverb. Revenge is a dish best served cold. But you know what? There's another proverb. It goes like this. Before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. What's that saying? The person who seeks revenge does this to his or her own harm. Have you ever been hurt badly and have found that great desire welling up within you to seek revenge? If so, you can identify with the character we're going to be talking about today. David, the soon-to-be king of Israel, whose life we've been studying from First and 2 Samuel. We last saw him in the cave of Adullam, chased there by King Saul. And he's discouraged. He's defeated. He's pouring out his heart before the Lord. He's lost all of his worldly possessions, and he's writing psalms to the Lord, seeking the Lord's help. Well, it wasn't long before God sent him some companionship. In 1 Samuel 22, we read a couple of things. One is that his brother and his whole family, when they found out where he was, they came to where he was. Not only that, there's also the verse in that chapter that says, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. Now there were there about 400 men with him. Imagine taking all those people that are discontented and distressed and in debt and hammering them into a fighting army. Somehow David, his greatness, was able to do that. Well, here he is left in the cave of Adullam after the prophet Gad said, you know, you're over here in this foreign country, David. God wants you back in Israel. And so he comes back to Judah, and he stays there in the forest, and then he goes and hides in this cave. But Saul continued to pursue David. 1 Samuel 23, verse 14 says, And Saul sought him every day. But God did not deliver him into his hand. David had little rest from Saul. He's being pursued day after day. Can you imagine that? Somebody with the power to kill him, to take his life, overwhelming odds, pursuing him every day. It's easy to understand how David might desire to have revenge, isn't it? David has done nothing to deserve this trouble, and he's had quite a bellyful of Saul's insane jealousy. If it was vengeance he wanted, soon he would get his chance. But Saul continually seeks to kill David. I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24 and read along with me. 1 Samuel chapter 24, we'll begin in verse 1. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. Now, imagine a desert. Miles and miles of rock and sand. Desolate place. Nothing grows there. There is a body of water there called the Dead Sea. Nobody can drink it. It's made of heavy minerals and kind of a briny oil that you would never want to drink any of that. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. There's nothing that can live in that. But right at this point, there's an outcropping of rock. And there, there's this cool flowing waterfall and stream, beautiful, clean, pure water, wonderful to drink. And everything that grows in that area is growing right there where this oasis is called En Gedi. This is a great place to hide out, and that's where David travels to, and he hides out in this rock formation. They provide cover and even elevation so he can see his enemy coming from afar off. And perhaps this place is where he was inspired to write some of the words of his most beautiful psalms. Like Psalm 18, consider verse 2. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. That's what he's doing here. He's taking refuge in this high rock formation. And God does deliver David. Let's see how. Verse 2. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Saul wants to make sure he has an overwhelming superior numerical superiority. So he gets 3,000 men. Now, That's probably the majority of his fighting force. They should be protecting the borders. The Philistines up north are invading repeatedly, and and the people of Israel need these soldiers to protect them, and yet he gathers them, and he takes these soldiers away to pursue basically one man, David, who Saul senses as a threat and might replace him as king. Well, in the midst of pursuing, he comes to this area. And in the process, Saul heeds nature's call. Look at verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way, a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now think about this. What are the chances that in all the places of Israel, these two individuals, these enemies, should wind up in the same place? Coincidence? Or is sovereign God at work? I think that. I think God has brought these two together. Now look at what David's men suggest for him David and his men were far back in the cave obviously not all of them but a group of them the men said this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish now look as you will throughout all the stories of David's life in scripture you won't find this I think David's men are kind of making it up on the fly. They are better soldiers than they are missionaries. What about when somebody says something to you, you know, that's kind of spiritual, you know, sounds spiritual, but maybe off the wall? What should you do? Well, maybe ask them, hey, you know, can you show me that in Scripture? Show me where I can find that. Let's be careful to not let all kinds of things lead us astray when Scripture is the thing that guides us accurately. These men are saying, this is the Lord's will, but I don't think it was. Well, now look what David did. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Verse 5, afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. It's kind of like David might slash the tires of Saul's car. You know, vandalism is essentially what he did. But David's act should not be judged on the size or the intensity of the act committed, but on the person against whom it is committed. If somebody does something against the president of the United States, even if it's a small act, it's taken very seriously. And so it is here. Saul is God's anointed as king. And he is still king. And God is the one who anointed him. It's God who will remove him. And without David's help. So, David refuses to take revenge. Verse 6. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went on his way. Basically, the men are saying to David, oh, come on, David, this guy has been pursuing you for months. Now's your chance. Get up and strike him. But David has reasons for not doing that, at least two reasons. Number one, he has tremendous respect for the office of king, even if he doesn't represent the person in the office. That's a good lesson for us. Respect the office. And secondly, he knew that what he had done initially out of was out of anger and bitterness. And he's grieved now that he realizes that he has allowed anger and bitterness to control his actions, even if just for a short period of time. And he repents of this. So what can we learn from the Word of God about dealing with difficult situations and difficult people. How do we deal with the person who manipulates situations at work and makes himself or herself look good at your expense? The family member who said some really hurtful and untrue things about you. The supposed friend who borrowed money promising to pay it back and so far you haven't seen a dime of it. The person who in their own anger strikes you or causes you physical harm. The spouse who walked out on you, leaving you alone to deal with the kids. Or the parent who abused you. Let's spend some time talking about vengeance today. We humans have devised a number of ways to retaliate. Against people. Number one, physical violence. Physical violence is at an epidemic rate today. Way too many of us are ready to put up our fists and attack. Recently, Debbie and I took a needed vacation, went to Colorado, but we traveled it in two days. We stopped in Albuquerque the first night, and when we got there, Debbie started having trouble with her arm. A couple of days before, she'd been cooking in the kitchen and a grease popped up on her arm, severely burning her arm in several places. And one of those places, the largest, was now swelling and just in a matter of hours went from white to bright red. And so we figured we better not take any chances. So we spent several hours in urgent care that night. When she had finished, she got gotten an antibiotics to deal with it. And as she was checking out, When I wasn't with her, they gave her a sheet of paper and made her sign something. that said she had been advised about people who abuse people and what to do, the hotline to call if you've been abused. And they explained that in their state, many boyfriends, many husbands physically abuse women. And so this is for their protection. This is at an epidemic proportion right now. One look at the evening news and you see the difficulties that are happening around the globe and here in America as well. For example, rockets in Israel and fighting and counter-fighting revenge and attacks back and forth. The war in Ukraine, all the danger. Threats over Taiwan, two of the most powerful nations doing a lot of saber-rattling right now. Or drive-by shootings in Chicago. All the violence that's happening, not to mention school shootings, which grieve us deeply. Violence is at an epidemic proportion. In addition to physical violence, another way is verbal assaults. I'm going to read a rather long passage from James chapter 3. It relates to this. A large forest can be set on fire by little flame. The tongue is that kind of flame. It is a world of evil among the parts of our bodies, and it completely contaminates our bodies. The tongue sets our lives on fire, and is itself set on fire from hell. People have tamed all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures. yet no one can tame the tongue. It is an uncontrollable evil filled with deadly poison. With our tongues, we praise the Lord and Father. Yet with the same tongues, we curse people who are created in God's likeness. Praise and curses come from the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, this should not happen. Now we know how dangerous the tongue can be. We know that it can inflame situations. That we can be tempted in a moment of weakness, of desiring revenge, to unleash our tongue and say things later we may regret we said. Later the damage has been done. The fire has been started and spreads. And there's no way we can take those words back. Next, as Christians, we know we shouldn't assault people physically. And we shouldn't attack them verbally, no matter what they do to us. So instead, we retaliate with a cold shoulder. You know, turn a cold shoulder to people when they do things to us. Let them know that they've made us mad. Let them know that they're not welcome. Let them know our attitude towards them. It's like the basketball referee who was recently, uh, recently told of a strange thing that happened to him. He was in a basketball game, he was refereeing, and uh, the coach made a substitution. The new guy came in, and he started getting all over the referee. He started guarding the referee. And even when his team was on the offensive, he was still guarding the referee. And the ref called timeout. And he goes over to the coach. He says, coach, I don't know how to tell you this, but you've got a guy on your team who's guarding me. And the coach kind of had a wry smile, and he said, well, I always told my men to guard against the man who's hurting our team the most. (laughs) Well, that's like us as Christians. When somebody hurts us, we respond with the cold shoulder. So, how do we handle the person who hurt us? Let's take a lesson from David. Back to 1 Samuel 24, verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. David offers a passionate plea to Saul, let's make up and be friends. I think David had had enough of being on the run, and he decided to go and talk to Saul. If Saul is going to kill him, so be it, but he was going to end this thing if he could. Well, sometimes we have to do that. We have to take the initiative and go and talk to a person. I know the temptation is to just let it lie. Don't deal with it. We don't want to stir the pot. But sometimes, as things go on and on, we need to take the initiative. David did. And sometimes we need to do that as well. Well, David says, King Saul, you don't have the facts straight. I'm not trying to kill you. And people are telling you lies about me. Why do you listen to them? Let me prove it. Verse 11. See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you. But you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. If I was going to kill you, I would have done it back there in the cave, but I didn't. Jesus instructed his followers in Matthew 18. If a believer does something wrong, go, confront him when the two of you are alone. If he listens to you, you have won back that believer. Sometimes we have to take the initiative, have to go and speak to them. May we do so in a peaceful tone. May we do so seeking to reconcile. That's the purpose. Well, Instead, we go to everyone else and let everyone else know how a low life, what a low life that person is and the nerve of that person to have done what they did. We need to go to the person directly and not to everybody else. Well, David remains humble. He even confronts the man who wants to kill him. Verse 14, against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. At this, Saul repents, at least temporarily. Verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me how of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. And verse 20, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And so the parting, David gave his oath to Saul, then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. David goes up to the stronghold. Saul has said he's had a change of heart, but David has seen this before. And Saul will have a change of heart and then reverse course and again go on the offensive. And so David and his men hope for the best, but they continue to watch with a weary eye. So, applications. Applications. These come from Michael Cassera, who shares, Romans 12, 18 says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He says, we might as well face the facts, not everyone is going to like us. A lot of us want to be liked, but the fact is, not everybody is going to like us. Jesus even had his enemies, they crucified him. Sometimes Christians will feel like they have to bow down and make peace, and sometimes they'll compromise principles in order to do so. But we have to understand, there are going to be times, like with David and Saul, where people are not going to like us. And maybe we have to be okay with that at times. Next, anticipate feelings of revenge, feelings of revenge will come. I'm not saying take revenge, but feelings of revenge will come. We're human. And let's be honest, in our humanity, what's the first thing that comes to mind when somebody hurts us badly? Boy, I want to get back. That's natural. But what God is asking us to do is something supernatural. He's asking for us to overcome that tendency and do the right thing. It's not easy. Not natural. One person said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I just want to be about the Lord's work. <laughs> know for sure you will need to deal with a desire to retaliate and to get even. Those feelings will be there. But a mature, spirit-led Christian will not act on feelings. They will act on what they know is right. Next, refuse to fight in the flesh. David's men said, go get him, David. He deserves it. This is your moment. And it took all of David's integrity and his maturity to stop the tendency to take revenge. The spirit-led Christian will refuse to fight in the flesh, will refuse to take the situation into his own hands to do wrong. Instinct, Instinct says curse, God says bless. Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I challenge you today to think of the name of one person who perhaps has done you wrong, who is very difficult to deal with. Think of that one person. You might be tempted to pray down curses on that person. I'm going to ask you to take this passage, bless and curse not. Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. So I'm going to ask you to do that. Can you think of one person you have difficulty with? If you don't have that one person, Lord bless you. Because almost all of us do. That's just the nature of the animal. Think of that one person and choose to pray for for them, for their name, by name, every day this week. And in doing so, what you're going to find is that when you're praying for God to bless a person, that feeling of desire to take revenge will bleed away. And you will begin to have a love for the person you are praying for. And forgive your offender. You've heard this, you know, the saying, but they don't deserve to be forgiven. Yeah, but we need to forgive or else we're going to be in bondage. We're going to be in anger and bitterness as long as we nourish that feeling. We need to resist that and we need to forgive. Christ forgave us. We should forgive others, right? And in doing so, what happens is we are released out of the prison of our own making. You know, if we're bitter and angry and, and uh, wrathful against a person, they may not even know. They don't care. It probably doesn't affect them. But it affects you. It affects us. And so forgive that person. It's a challenge to do so. It takes praying to God sometimes to do so. But do this and find that God blesses you for doing so. Well, in addition to David, there is another person who left vengeance where it needs to be left, in the hands of God. And that person is Jesus Christ. First Peter 2, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you Jesus was sinless, completely pure, and without fault. Yet he was insulted, beaten, abused, and put to death, and death on the cross. He once taught, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And Peter is teaching us that is exactly what Christ did. He is our example On how to respond. Question Why would the mighty Son of God allow himself to be subjected to such mistreatment without an ounce of retaliation or revenge? The next verse tells us, verse 24 He himself bore our sins on his body, on the tree, on the cross. So that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus allowed himself to be abused and didn't retaliate. He could have. He could have called out legions of angels for his safety. He didn't because he had a purpose. And that purpose was for him to take your sin and my sin upon himself and to die. As a payment, the just payment for all of our sins. The wages of sin is death. And he died in our place. He committed no sins, but he died so that our slate could be wiped clean. 1 John 2.2 He is the payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. To pay for our sins. That's why Jesus did not retaliate. It's the wonderful message of the gospel that because Jesus willingly went to the cross, we don't have to pay for our own sins because He took our sins. He paid the just penalty. There is no longer any penalty to be paid. We are forgiven, we are viewed in Christ as having his very righteousness, God will not send us away when it comes time for us to meet him. We will be with him forever because Jesus Christ did not retaliate, did not seek revenge, but took our sins and paid for them. God the Father has a response for us to that. We call it communion. Some call it the Lord's Supper. Some call it something else. But regardless what it's called, it is a remembrance of what Christ did on the cross. A reminder of how God chose to forgive us. And so today we celebrate communion once again. If you don't have a cup... The personal cup with the bread and the juice in it. Todd will give one of those to you. So I invite you to take that now. And remember, B before C. Bread before the cup. That's the order that he gave us to take it in. So peel back that cover. Take his body, which is given. For us. And on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper, after the meal he took the cup, the third cup of Passover, the cup of redemption, and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance. When you're done, if you would pass the cups to the aisle for collection.